If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We hope you've been enjoying the History Extra podcast and all it has to offer. Summer is the perfect time to delve deeper into the things you love. So subscribe to BBC History magazine for just £24.99 every six issues, saving 30% on the shop price. Plus, you will receive a book of your choice worth up to £30. Choose from Russia, Revolution and Civil War, 1917 to 1921 by Anthony Beaver, In Search of the Dark Ages by Michael Wood, signed edition, in Search of Mary Seacole, The Making of a Cultural Icon by Helen Rappaport, signed edition. Or Persians, The Age of the Great Kings by Professor Lloyd Llewellyn Jones. To take advantage of this offer and for more information, visit www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash summer reads 2022. Offer ends on the 5th of August 2022. Offer only available to UK residents. Please visit website for terms and conditions. <laughs> And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. 2022 is the History Extra podcast's 15th birthday. So to mark 15 years of fascinating historical conversations, we've asked 15 historians to nominate a figure from history who they think deserves their 15 minutes of fame. Some are inspiring people who deserve more airtime today. Others are those whose significance in history has been overlooked. And some simply led fascinating and unexpected lives. In today's episode, Professor Rana Mitter nominates Jiang Ting Fu. Rob Attar spoke to Rana to find out more about this 20th century Chinese historian and diplomat, who is an important link between China and the West before the Communist Revolution. To begin with, could you please just briefly summarise Jiang Ting Fu's life for us? Jiang Ting Fu was a distinguished figure in the early to mid 20th century in China, but he was also important because he was typical of a wider career trajectory, which really doesn't exist anymore in the same way. He was a scholar, he was a diplomat, he was a government official, and he essentially drew from various aspects of his career to make the whole, you might say, more than the sum of the parts. So 
he grew up in relatively impoverished uh, circumstances, not you know desperately poor, but not exactly um, immensely wealthy either. In uh, central China, inland China, in the early 20th century, he was very smart and he managed to get a scholarship, which eventually sent him not only to a much better university in, in China, but actually to the United States. And that proved to be a real turning point because to do that, of course, he had to develop extremely strong English. And the fact that he was able to operate in both English and Chinese was one of the factors that shaped his life. And he went off to uh, Columbia University. He did a PhD actually on the British uh, working class of, of all things and became essentially a pretty well-informed uh, and rather innovative historian. Uh, he spent a bit of time actually teaching and providing some teaching in the United States, but his career then really took off in an academic sense when he went back to China and taught in some of China's best universities, Nankai in Tianjin and then Tsinghua in Beijing. But if he'd just been a distinguished historian, distinguished academic, you know, that would have been enough in itself, an important contribution to the intellectual life of early 20th century China. But actually he went much further than that. He was actually a slightly unusual character in some ways, in that in some aspects of what he thought, he was relatively quite liberal, you know, he was quite keen on, on democratizing China. But at first, he was also rather convinced by the idea that China needed a sort of strongman leader before it could get to democracy. And for whatever reason, his often quite critical essays attracted the attention of China's government at the time under Chiang Kai-shek, who was then the, the nationalist leader of China. He took power in 1928 and lasted on the mainland for another 20 years before being kicked out by the communists. And someone like Jiang Tingfu appealed to him because the nationalist government, the Guomindang, as they were known, had almost two different pathways for uh, intellectuals who uh, got on their nerves. One pathway was to basically shoot them, sometimes assassination in the street, literally. On other occasions, it was to recruit them, to actually bring them inside the system. And that's what they did with Jiang Tingfu. Quite quickly, he actually went on to a variety of quite distinguished posts. So he became one of China's most distinguished diplomats. Uh, amongst other things, he was the ambassador to the Soviet Union in the mid-1930s. And then went on to a variety of other roles. Again, we'll talk more about them in the conversation, but just a couple of key highlights. He was the uh, Chinese uh, administrator who headed up an organization called SINRA, C-N-R-R-A-A, which was the Chinese counterpart to a better-known organization, UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, which provided huge amounts of money and reconstruction in Europe and also in China in the post-World War II years. So Jiang Tingfu was in charge of the Chinese end of that, very, very uh, um, important in those controversies during the time of the, the Chinese civil war, the nationalists against the communists. And then finally, he accompanied Chiang Kai-shek when the nationalists had to flee to Taiwan after the communist victory in China in 1949. And he carried on the job he had at that point, which was China's first ambassador to the United Nations. So he ended his diplomatic career, you might say, with, uh, again, another very high level position. And so from from being you know, a young man, smart, but not necessarily in the best of circumstances at the beginning of the 20th century, he went through that path of being one of China's you know, really most important historians to being a diplomat and an administrator who was absolutely at the center of uh, China's turbulent 20th century and ended both in a position of, of being something of a critic of his own government, but also, you might say, a critical friend and a servant of it, even when it had lost power on the mainland and had to flee to Taiwan. And how unusual would you say his career trajectory was? You said he wasn't someone who necessarily was born, you know, in the highest circumstances. Was that quite rare for someone to then rise to such elevated positions? 
In some senses, Jiang Tingfu's life is very untypical because for anyone to reach the kind of positions he did, you know, ambassador of the Soviet Union or you know, ambassador of the UN, very few people in any country get to, to, to do that. And I wouldn't want to suggest that this kind of pathway was open to anything even like more than a, a small minority of people in China at that time. You had to have certain certain level of educational support, a certain level of, of, of uh, ability to um, you know, make your case and then get supported. And of course, the ability, for instance, to be able to learn English quite fluently, which was important to him. That said, I do want to put forward the idea that he was in some ways more typical than he might seem, because that trend of having intellectuals who go into public life and in many cases would have a Western education, quite often American education, universities like Columbia, Cornell, Harvard became quite central to that sort of dynamic. Many of them either studied or taught there for a, for a while. That wasn't just Jiang Tingfu. There were plenty of other people who had at least some part of that life story. So to give a couple of quick examples, uh, Hu Shi, who became China's ambassador to America during World War II. Uh, again, a big intellectual figure, very much in charge of trying to make Chinese simpler for people to read and write and learn in the early 20th century for its own population. So a real educational reformer. He also had a PhD, um, in his case, from the United States. Um, Wang Shijie, a uh, figure who became China's foreign minister, one of the last ones under Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government, 1945 to 48. He also had fluent English. He was a constitutional lawyer, very, very much part of that era when China was um, adapting into the uh, into the United Nations. So, as I say, it's not like there are hundreds and thousands of these people, but certainly a significant cadre of people who, who live between two worlds could understand China, understand the United States and the West more generally. Pretty much all of them, not absolutely everyone, but almost all of them men as well, which is perhaps not untypical for the career parts of that time but a kind of figure who essentially disappeared from view after the communist revolution in 1949, because if you didn't go to Taiwan and join, you know, the, uh, the group in exile there, then being on the mainland meant that essentially you were pretty much instantly cut off from any engagement with the Western world, because while Mao's China had, at least for 10 years or so, decent relationships with the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, the relationship with the West became very chilled and very frozen, and all those cosmopolitan PhDs from American universities just didn't have the kind of status or career path that people like Jiang Tingfu were amongst the last to be able to enjoy. And so I... I saw a piece that you wrote about his life where you described Jiang as pre-revolutionary China's last bridge with the West. Is that essentially just because of the timing of the communist revolution cuts that bridge off? Yes, that's fair to say. And anyone who wants to read that essay for free is welcome to do so on the Engelsberg Ideas website. There's a bit more about him there. I'd say that last, of course, means until things started to change again. And from the 1980s and 90s onwards, you do get that reopening of China to the Western world. You know, the arrival once again of lots of brilliant young Chinese, this time women and men in the Western world doing PhDs and uh, becoming you know, very literate and fluent in both cultures and both languages. But having said that, yes, I think it's fair to say that Jiang Tingfu and his generation were the last ones who got to exercise that kind of pathway that took them between scholarship and government service and um, involvement with a non-communist politics. I mean, Jiang Tingfu, to be clear, his views changed over time and he was by no means a kind of, um, how can you put it, lickspittal servant of the, of, of the Chiang Kai-shek government at the time. He was very critical of its human rights abuses. He was very critical of its dictatorial tendencies and felt that if there were room for such a thing as a liberal party in, in China, that, that would probably be where he would, he would sit. 
But he was also realistic and knew that, you know, in the war-torn China of the post-war years, the space for liberalism in the classic sense, he wrote long essays about liberalism, actually, you know, what is it and what would it mean in China? Uh, he was also aware that there wasn't going to be a space for that kind of, of, of politics. You know, China was not Sweden, it was not Switzerland. And therefore, in those terms, he also grappled with a dilemma and that's faced uh, intellectuals actually in both nationalist China and communist China of how much do you actually think that your patriotic duty is to serve the regime even if you deeply disapprove of some of its aspects and where is there a red, red line where you have to say actually thus far and no further and Jiang Tingfu I think in a sense always grappled with and was in some ways quite tormented by where exactly that line was was going to be. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. You can look at the debates that he he goes through in the 1930s about will strongman dictatorships overcome democracies and should they? Well, goodness me, we're having those debates today. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What would you describe as Jiang's greatest achievement? I think probably Jiang's greatest achievement was one that he was neither given much credit for, nor did he necessarily give himself all that much credit for. But I think in retrospect, it looks better than at the time. And that was the very, very difficult um, task of trying to coordinate a Chinese organization that would uh, handle the rehabilitation and reconstruction of post-war China, a country which had been smashed into pieces by the Japanese invasion. Now, the reason it was very controversial at the time was that his Chinese governmental organization had to work with a fledgling United Nations organization, the uh, UNRWA that I've mentioned. Um, and this basically led to massive tensions between the Americans and the Chinese and Jiang Tingfu and other administrators. And he eventually ended up resigning, you know, in, in anger in 1947, and someone else had to finish the program. So in the short term, it didn't look that great. But looking back in retrospect and looking at the way in which actually significant efforts were made to do things like mending the dikes on the Yellow River, which had been you know, uh, smashed by the nationalist government during during the war, trying to feed millions and millions of people who were suffering from, from malnutrition. There were huge numbers of flaws in the operation that Jiang was in charge of. And the flaws are one of the reasons why eventually the communists, of course, won the civil war just a few years later. But I think it hasn't been appreciated enough that the stuff that succeeded, including the feeding, the transporting, the rehabilitating, the rebuilding, all of these tasks that took place in a very short period of time with funds that were generous, they were mostly provided by the United States, but not nearly sufficient to the task of reconstructing a country the size of, of China. That deserves, I think, a kinder assessment. Indeed, in some academic work, I've tried to provide such an assessment compared to what people said about it at the time, uh, and even what Jiang Ting for himself might have, might have said at the time. So we've talked a little bit about his position in China. 
Do we know how he was viewed by the Westerners he dealt with? Zhang Jingfu became one of the best known Chinese to a Western academic and also political audience. And I think he was pretty well re- regarded, actually. If you take people like uh, John King Fairbank, who became the doyen of Western um, his, uh, studies of Chinese history. I mean, he became the iconic professor at Harvard for, for several decades. And Zhang Tingfu essentially was, was you know, one of the people who, who had, uh, had instructed um, Fairbank and trained him in certain types of Chinese documents. So Zhang Tingfu's impact on the uh, trajectory of American studies of Chinese history was certainly very notable, and he was very well regarded that way. In terms of his political um, reputation, I think he was regarded as generally, uh, you know, well-meaning, uh, you know, not corrupt uh, by the, the standards certainly of the, of the time. I think no no personal scandal ever ever attached him that uh, that way. But in the end, I think also a feeling, if you look at the writings of people like Benjamin Kaiser, who was the American head of the UNRWA program for much of the time, that it was difficult to know exactly what it was that Jiang Tingfu wanted. Actually, in some senses, I don't think it was that hard to know what he wanted, because what he wanted was both for China post-war, post-1945, to be treated as a serious independent actor in a world where China had fought for its freedom and deserved to to be elevated in, in global status, but also for the wider world, including the West in particular, the Americans in particular, to provide very substantial amounts of funds to reconstruct China. You know, they looked at France and um, Central Europe and places where American money was pouring in to reconstruct China and said, you know, well, why not us as well? Part of the answer came back that, uh, well, actually, you know, the problem is that you have this dictatorial government and you're in a civil war and you know, this looks like money down the drain. You can argue whether that was, was, was right or wrong. But Jiang Tingfu and his activities got rather caught up in what became rapidly a rather toxic relationship between the United States and China during that time. And I think that probably Jiang Tingfu was regarded as, relatively speaking, a well-meaning liberal, but although smart and thoughtful, perhaps not as well connected as he might be. And certainly, unlike many of the real power brokers at that time, he had no personal army behind him, which the most powerful figures in China in the 1940s really did. So why do you think that Jiang deserves his 15 minutes of fame now? I think that many of the things that most concern Jiang Tingfu looked very out of place in Mao's China, but actually have tremendous amount of significance in the China of today. Think about the jobs that he uh, he, he held and the way in which he set some of the stage for um, what you might call long-running stories. So he was China's first ambassador to the United Nations. And in some ways, this became a slightly ludicrous position because once he was on Taiwan, although Taiwan was recognized as the true government of China by the US. It was, you know, as today, a small island off the coast of China. It's not obviously a, a major superpower in its own right. And yet, of course, these days, you know, the, the fact that, that, that China was able to hold that seat meant that in later years it will be transferred to the mainland. And of course, they are the, 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 the state that holds it today. So in a sense, that trajectory runs from Jiang Tingfu's period of making it clear that he regarded China's presence in the UN as an important good that needed to be preserved in international uh, international society. More than that, I think it's fair to say that many of his uh, analyses of the crisis of China in the mid 20th century, you know, agricultural crisis, the ability to create a stable government, which he looked at actually as a historian and quite a clear eyed historian, have stood up to time very well in certain ways. I've read many of his essays. And in some ways, you know, you can look at the debates that he he goes through in the 1930s about will strongman dictatorships overcome democracies? And should they? Well, goodness me, we're having those debates today. In today's debates. China is usually on the other side. It's on the strongman side rather than the democracy side. But people like Jiang Tingfu show that 
any idea, any careless idea that there's no basis for liberal and democratic thought in China is completely wrong. Figures like Jiang were very important in theorizing exactly how that could be maintained in a culture that was distinctively Chinese, but also distinctively liberal. That's a very important intellectual contribution. And even if Jiang Tingfu's um, contributions are now less well remembered than they might be, I would say they deserve to be looked at again. And you know, it's one of the projects that I pursued over, over the years as a historian myself. So it's, it's fair to say clearly that Jiang is not very well known here in Britain. How well is he known and how is he regarded in both China and Taiwan these days? I think that he's well remembered amongst specialists, but I don't think he's a name that necessarily has a huge amount of uh, popular um, you know, recognition in either Taiwan or, or China. So I think if you ask people who do the history of the 20th century uh, as, as academic specialists, they would certainly know who he is. First of all, because he was a historian and therefore one of them. And second, because he was a historical actor in his own right and held these various diplomatic and other positions uh, of some standing and of, of some importance. I think that he will be regarded today amongst those who know about him as an important figure, you know, not an absolutely transformative figure by any means in the sense of Mao Zedong or even Chiang Kai-shek or, uh, or others. You know, he wasn't a, a warlord. He was a government minister, but he wasn't a sort of senior level admin, uh, administrator in, in, in the very, very kind of powerful, powerful sense. But his condition and his ideas and his situation do provide an insight into that now somewhat forgotten, but actually at the time, very important world in which China was going to be a major actor. It was going to be probably, if anything, relatively more oriented towards the West, but it also wanted to maintain its own governmental and constitutional settlement, which might not look either like a Western democracy, nor indeed like the old Chinese empire, but a sort of distinctive republic that was going to shape its own destiny. That particular republic was pretty much cut off in 1949 with the communist victory. But Jiang Tingfu, I think, is now looked at, even in the mainland, I should say, you know, biographies and sources and so forth about him are frequently published and discussed in mainland China today, even though he was an official of the anti-communist nationalist government, because it's seen that he sits in that wider continuity of one of the big questions, which is still being answered today, which is, what does modernity mean in China? And Jiang Tingfu is a very good lens into exactly that question. That was Professor Rana Mitter speaking to Rob Attar. Rana is Professor of the History and Politics of Modern China at the University of Oxford. His most recent book is China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism. If you're enjoying this series and would like early access to more episodes to hear more historians nominating people who deserve their 15 minutes of fame, go to historyextra.com forward slash 15 hyphen minutes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. Mm-hmm.